Good morning. Good morning to all those of you who are watching online as well as we celebrate Christmas, talk about peace again on this December the 20th. What is said in, you know, the message that, in fact, Jason read it a minute ago, the, the, the first announcement of peace from the angels to the shepherds um, is really the greatest message in a way that has ever been given, you know, ever declared peace on earth and goodwill toward man. But it was said, it came, I should say, at the cost to God, it came at a cost to the one who gave it um, and still offers it today. We're going to look at that very passage, uh, Luke chapter 2, in a couple days on Christmas Eve as we finish this peace series on Christmas Eve. But today, I want to take a look at an Old Testament passage that talks about the birth and life of the Messiah as well. It's in Isaiah chapter 53, so we have a copy of the Old Testament, or I should say the copy of the Bible with you in the book of Isaiah, turn it on or open it up. Isaiah 53, one of the most well-known um, prophecies really of the um, birth of the Messiah, the, the coming of the Messiah in all the Old Testament, it's found in Isaiah 53. We'll read just verses one through six in a message titled, The Cost of Peace. The Cost of Peace. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The cost of peace. The first thing that this famous prophecy of the birth and life and even death of the Messiah says is that he was not what anyone expected. Right? He was not what anyone expected. He was, as it says in this passage, despised and rejected. We know that, know the story of Jesus. We know that you know, he came unto his own and his own frankly said, no thank you, right, John 1. He was despised and rejected. But this prophecy tells us, even in its poetry, it's a song you might say, it tells us why he was despised and rejected in a way that even the Gospels don't tell us why. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus, if he is the fulfillment of this prophecy, and I believe he is, 
was not one of the beautiful people of his day, okay? Jesus was not one of the beautiful people of his day, and it's very likely that he would not make the 100 most beautiful people in our day if he lived today. Outwardly, if this passage is telling us something, Jesus was not an important person, right? At least outwardly. He had no beauty or majesty to attract. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, you assume, that's why, right? Overlooked even, maybe more than overlooked. Rejected. And we held him in low esteem. He was not an important person. He was not a person of majesty, is the word it's used, or royalty. Now, most of the gospels that um, we read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, the, the, the most of the gospels cover either the last year of Jesus' life or the last few weeks or week of Jesus' life called the Passion. That's where the focus is, as it should be, okay? But I think if you or I lived in the small little town of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, in all of those years where Jesus did actually live and have a zip code and, and had a life, right? We would, it, we, it would have been largely unremarkable. Uh, if Jesus was in the market, we, I, he didn't live in, a, in, in, a, you know, in, in some specialized environment for all those years. If Jesus went to the market, I'm sure that he did with his parents, with his friends. You would not have turned your head. If Jesus ever showed up with his father, we don't know this, but if he ever showed up with his father on a job, his father was a carpenter, if he ever happened to do that as sort of an apprentice, you wouldn't have bowed down in the kitchen before him, right? There would have been nothing, there would have been no reason for you to do that. He had no beauty or majesty about him. It's not the kind of person he was. I think we tend to forget some of us who've been in church or some of us who've driven by churches and driven by manger scenes for our whole lives, depending on where we get our understanding of the Christian message, we forget that Jesus Christ, the person at the center of the Bible and the center of this story, came from a very poor family. Okay, that wasn't a mistake. Mary and Joseph were very poor. When they went to offer the, the, the gifts that were required for, the, for a male child, and the Bible records this in the book of Matthew, they offered two turtle doves. That means nothing to you and me, but to a Jew that meant something. I'm poor, right? It was the provision for the poor people. Jesus Christ came from a know-nothing town, right? He didn't come from New York City. He didn't come from Paris, France. He didn't come from Los Angeles. He came from a know-nothing town. He was, lived a largely anonymous life. And his disciples first got together, if you know the story in John chapter one, they all came from the same community. They were kind of friends. I'm talking about the apostles. They came from the northern part of Galilee. It was sort of the purest area. It was sort of the, where the revolutionaries lived in a manner of speaking. That's where they came from. Nazareth was up there too. And when Jesus first was being presented publicly in his ministry, some of these friends would tell their other friends and, and, and Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel. These are part of the 12 apostles. They say, hey, you gotta meet this guy, Jesus. We think he is the one and Nathaniel says where's he from and Philip says Nazareth and Philip says excuse me Nathaniel says Nazareth are you kidding me can anything good 
come from Nazareth? Would God, would the, would the, would the, the long-awaited Messiah come from some know-nothing town like Nazareth? Okay? Sarcastically said in John chapter 1. The way this passage opens, okay, it's a rhetorical question, by the way. Who has believed our message? It's the, the obvious answer to that question is no one, right? Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm, the, the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, what is the arm of the Lord? If you know your Bible, you, you, you might have heard this statement before. The arm of the Lord is just a, it's just a way of talking about God's strength. It's a metaphor for God's strength. Uh, who, to whom has the Lord of the arm been revealed? Well, why was the message not believed? Who has believed our message? Well, nobody did because no one ever dreamed that the God of the universe would answer the greatest prophecy of all prophecies, the coming of the Messiah. And when he showed up, he'd be the son of a carpenter from a know-nothing town, okay? Who has believed our report? Nobody has. He was not what anyone expected. The same God, by the way, who chose Mary and Joseph to be the surrogates or the parents of Jesus is the same God that chose Abraham and Sarah, if you know that story, a out of gas, um, at the end of their lives, a couple who lived in great shame in the ancient Near East because they had no children, to be the father and the mother of a nation. It's the same God who chose David, not the tall, strapping, handsome one if you read 1 Samuel 16, but chose the eighth son, the shepherd boy, to be the king of Israel. It's the same God that chose Esther, if you know that story, who was basically a teenage girl who was of a, a oppressed class of people to confront the great Persian king who was one of the most powerful men in her day. It's the same God, by the way, who in Christ chose you, <laughs> if you're a Christian here today, and chose me. I got a note, uh, a card, it's been at my desk for a month. A uh, couple I know from the church, haven't seen them in a while, like a lot of you who I haven't seen in a while listening to me today. And, but they wrote me this beautiful note, spent a few words about the sermon. This was in the, in the middle of November. Talked about thanks, gave some thanks, shared some things about their own life, what God had done in their lives in the years of the last 10 years or so. And then they said this, middle of this long note. Thank you, Rob, for all the encouraging words you speak at each sermon, knowing that they are from God. God took you, regardless of your background, and made you a servant of Jesus Christ here at Browncroft. Now, when I read that note, I had no idea specifically what she was talking about. God took you regardless of your background. But I immediately felt the weight of it and the grace of it, right? Because I was not what anybody expected either. You know the holidays, the, the, we're, 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 as you know, we're, we're, you've been in this for a while, you and me, that, that there's two holidays we're experiencing right now and they're, they're conflated, have been forever, that is to say Christmas, the, the cultural holiday, 
right? And the birth of Jesus, which is a religious holiday. And in some ways they're conflated. And in, in, in both of them, in a manner of speaking, warm the heart, right? We, uh, some people maybe are humbug on Christmas, but most of us like Christmas and it does warm the heart and there's all good things about it. And most of us, if you're a Christian, all of us love the story, the beautiful story of the birth of Jesus. They're both warm the heart. But the value system connected to them, of course, are very, very different, right? In many ways, Christmas is a, you could say, a consumerist holiday, right? Not a, it doesn't mean it's a negative, but it's largely about buying and selling and getting things. It's about, you know, being around people and receiving people and receiving gifts and food and everything else. It's, a, it's very consumption, you might say, based. But everything about the story and the birth of Jesus is about humility. Think about it for a minute, right? If Jesus didn't just stumble into the family of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, which the Bible, if you're a Bible believer, says he didn't. It's prophesied in the book of Micah hundreds of years before it ever happened here as well. He'll be born in Bethlehem. The story, everything about the story of Jesus, if God organized it and God created it, is about humility. Poor parents, son of a carpenter, the smallest of towns, the turtle doves, the dusty trails, okay? There was nothing beautiful about him that would attract us. Every, you could say that the Christmas story, I'm talking about the Bible story of Jesus born in the manger, etc. You could say that the Christmas story is the personification of humility. Okay? That not only tells us something about God, he grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of dry ground. That's poetic ways of talking about very humble beginnings. It not only tells us something about God, listen carefully. It tells us something about what it means to receive God, what it means to worship God, what it means to know God. Okay? You know the Magi, familiar with that story? We didn't read it this morning. The wise men. It's a real story. It's in the Bible. It's not, it's not a made-up story. Let me say something about the wise men or the magi. It's a technical term. These were not, you know, um, you know uh, just people out for a joy ride. They weren't, you know, people looking for something to do that wanted to, you know, go to Europe for the summer. These were professionals. They were, you might call them philosophers from the Far East who were very serious about their work. And they came a very long way. They, might, they were people of majesty. And when they came to Jesus, he was actually not in a manger. Don't mean to ruin that, uh, your, 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 your uh, coffee table for you, but, or your front lawn. But he did not act, Jesus was actually a child by then. But I want you to think about this. Why am I telling you that? Because if you, if you follow the New Testament carefully, when they came and eventually found Jesus, they went into his house. Now keep this in mind. Jesus was a child, okay? A child, when they saw the child, they bowed down and worshiped him. Now think of that image. These three sophisticated, well-respected uh, men, men themselves of majesty, are sitting in some poor living room of a, probably a one or two room house before a child 
and they bow down and worship him. Okay? Could you think of a more dramatic picture of humility than bowing before a child? The Apostle Paul will say in the letter to the Philippian church, this is for us, every knee will bow. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's only one way you can come to him. In humility. Okay? In humility. He was not what anyone expected. Who are you expecting today? Who am I expecting to meet today? Second thing this passage tells us. He paid a price no one could have imagined. Okay? Why was this so unbelievable? Again, this is poetry, but it's powerful truth. Who has believed our message? Ellipses, nobody. Why didn't they believe it? Because it was the most underwhelming servant that anyone could have ever imagined. Okay? No one believed it because even then and even 2,000 years ago or 700 years after this, it was absolutely the most unbelievable thing the most seemingly crazy thing that anyone could have imagined. Contrary to the hopes and the expectations of the Jewish people. Okay? You ask yourself, why was he despised? Why was he rejected? Contrary to the hopes and expectations of the Jewish people and maybe non-Jewish people, the Messiah's promised peace, as we're talking about here today, would not be secured by the sword Okay? That is my military might. How do we achieve peace today and how have we for thousands of years in human history? He with the biggest guns wins. Okay, that's, that's normal life. We understand that. But that's not the way the Messiah's peace was secured. And if you think for a minute that's just some sort of fringy group, that's not a fringy group. The 12 apostles, when Jesus Christ was arrested, Matthew chapter 26, you remember that they arrested him. They would, Jesus had caused a lot of trouble. He, 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 he upset, he, he got on the wrong lists. He upset the wrong people. They said, we gotta stop this man. There was actually a contract out to, to take his life. If you know the, the New Testament. This man, they plotted to kill him. They found out through intrigue, right? And intelligence gathering where he gathered. And they went to this private place, this attache of soldiers, and they came to him to arrest him. And one of the 12 apostles, I believe it was Peter, who was the chief apostle, not some crazy person, not someone who you know, edges, around the edges believes in the things of God, who was Jesus' top chief apostle, pulls out his sword and strikes one of those guards. You know what Jesus said, Matthew 26? Put that thing back in its place, Peter, because he who draws the sword will die by the sword. But then he says something else that's very, very important for us to hear because many of us, I think we have the wrong idea of who God is. We have the wrong idea of why we think God is so inactive in the world and we have all kinds of ideas of what God should do about the evil and trouble in the world. Jesus looked at his apostles because he understood their thinking. 
But he was not what they expected either. He said, listen, Matthew 26, do you not think, you guys, do you not think that I could call on 12 legions of angels right now if I wanted to? If I wanted to, I'm, I'm, this, we're not here because I'm bumbling through the drama here. We're not here because I can't think of a good way because we, didn't, we wouldn't find a secret enough place to hide. If I could call 12 legions of angels right now. My father could send power this fast and wipe out every opponent that's standing on the planet if I wanted to. But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? That's not who I am, right? The Messiah's promised peace would not come by the sword. It's not a political revolutionary, but by the death of an innocent man who was falsely accused, who was insulted, but he did not retaliate. He didn't say anything. He kept his mouth shut. What's said about God's servant in this passage, okay, who has believed our report, is not only undermines the expectation of the Messiah, listen carefully, this is for us, it undermines our understanding of ourselves. Okay? Because before you can receive the peace, you need to understand your own depth of need and your own conflict. It not only undermined the expectations of the Messiah, it underestimated our understanding of ourselves and the real problem that the Messiah came to solve, okay? Jesus Christ, it says in this passage, if he's the promised one, was a man of suffering and familiar with pain, okay? But let me say something clear if you didn't get it from this passage. It was not his suffering. It was not his pain. It was yours, it was mine, okay? Yes, he really suffered. Yes, there was real agony, but it wasn't his, it was yours. And unless you really see that, right? You've ever heard preachers say, you have to look at the cross and see that as your suffering. It's kind of a nice riff. But unless you really see that, I don't care how long you've been in the church, how many crosses you've driven by, how many manger scenes you've driven by, unless you really see your suffering and your pain, you will never know the peace that's promised. You'll never know the grace that's in the gospel. It was yours. Verse four. Surely he took up our pain. Surely he bore our suffering. Matthew chapter eight. The gospel writer comes back to these verses to make sense not just of the death of Jesus but the life of Jesus. When evening came, this is Jesus doing his ministry. Many who were demon-possessed and were brought to him and drove out the spirits with a word. I'm sorry, and, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed the sick. Okay, you know that much. Now watch this, interpretation. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Right here out of our passage. He took up our infirmity and bore our diseases. Why was Jesus 
an unattractive person? Why was he, um, you know, didn't really, wasn't really a head turner? Why was he not one of the most beautiful people? Because he was bearing your sickness. He was bearing your suffering. He was bearing your rebellion. He was bearing the worst of your diseases. That's why. Christosome, many of you wouldn't know him, but he's a great church father, one of the great early church fathers. Most of our diseases arise from sins of the soul. For if the sum of all, death itself, the wages of sin is death, has its roots and foundation from sin, much more the majority of our diseases also, since our very capability of suffering did itself originate here. What many people, I would, I would suggest to you, think when they drive by the manger scenes of the banks and churches of our day or the crosses they see on the churches all over the world like ours. See, the truth, what they think they see and what they really see are dramatically different. It's his life and his death addressed our sinful state, our alienation from God, our broken personhood verse 6 watch how this closes we all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all some of us miss what the Bible says because we don't know the Bible very well right? but those who do know exactly what's being said here this is poetry you say a lot and a little because you're making a reference. Verse 6 is taken, um, the language is taken straight from Leviticus chapter 16. The imagery is taken straight from Leviticus chapter 16 if you're a note taker, which is a full chapter devoted to what's called the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was the most holy, most important day in the entire Jewish um, worship system. Because on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, right? Kind of in their December, when it was all over, they gathered all the people together and they had this very important, you might say, um, religious uh, experience and they would take a goat. It's called the scapegoat. That's where the term comes from, right? Which in our court world means the person you blame for your own problems. The person that gets the heat for your own mistakes, right? But the scapegoat, was a goat that was taken on the Day of Atonement and the priest would come and with all the people watching, he would lay his hands on that goat and he would confess the wickedness and the rebellion and the sins of the nation from the year before. Out loud. Imagine your sins and mine. Out loud over this animal. And when he was done, it was someone else's job to take that animal and drive him out into the wilderness as an image to say, on this animal, the sins of the nation, of the individuals of the nation, have been transferred. All we like sheep have gone astray. This is the real meaning of sin. It would be great if sin just meant showing up late for a meeting or telling a white lie or even cheating, right? Transactional, well, that's not sin. Sin is making a decision that you're going to go your own way. That you don't need God. 
right? That's why Jesus came as a baby in a manger. That's why Jesus came the son of a carpenter. That's why Jesus came from a know-nothing town. Because unless you're willing to bow down and be humble before God, he's got nothing for you, okay? On him was laid the iniquity of us all, okay? He paid a price that no one ever, ever imagined. Finally, this, the question that opens this prophecy is really the, the heart of the question at the heart of the Christmas message, okay? We're almost done, which is this. Do you believe it, okay? Do you believe it? Who has believed our message? That passage is 2,700 years old, okay? And in a manner of speaking, in services like this one and all kinds of things, this message has been ringing out across the world for thousands of years. And I would suggest to you that the vast majority of people drive right by. And, and I would even say this, if I believe the parable of the sower, the vast majority of Christians, maybe some of us, and we kind of drive by too. Who has believed our message? Do you see the Christmas story as a heartwarming story of an underdog, right? The kid from Bethlehem who does some good. Or is the story of God sending his son on a rescue mission to bear your pain and to bear your suffering and your disease so that you might know the forgiveness of sin and might experience a lasting peace that nothing else in this world can give you. The two verses that starts this famous prophecy at the end of chapter 52, Isaiah. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. That's a poetic way of talking about the cross. Just as there were many who drove by the cross and the manger seat and said, wow, I know, don't even, not even turning my head, I don't get it. So, there's some others, he will sprinkle many nations, sort of a metaphor for blessing, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. What is he saying there? He's saying, listen, what they were not told on the street, what they were not told on cable television, what they were not told in their very casual sort of faith practice, right? What is the meaning of the manger? What is the meaning of the cross? What they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard on the street, they will understand that this very unremarkable human being, born in a know-nothing town, the son of a carpenter, who was nothing to look at, was the Messiah and the Savior of the world. So I ask you, December 20th, 
friends listening, friends in this room. First of all, do you see what they were not told they will see? Do you see? Do you know what the manger means? It's not an underdog story. Do you know what the cross means? Surely he took up your pain. See, some of you are still walking around with it. That shows you how deep of a Christian you are. He took up your suffering. You're still walking. You don't know how to be a Christian, maybe, right? He's not one of the beautiful people. Your pain, your suffering. Do you see, do you understand? And are you ready to receive? Okay? So just like the Messiah's peace does not come by the sword, conversion does not come by um, a fiat, right? This is not some crazy faith that says, let's go make converts, believe or else. Okay? It's not how it works. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, come and see. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see. To as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons and daughters of God. But you cannot receive him until you're willing to surrender your foolish pride, until you're willing to bow down before a child. Let's pray. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. And this is for anyone in this room or on this line uh, listening who says, you know, I've certainly driven by a manger scene before or a, a church with a cross on it. I've heard these stories, but I've never truly humbled myself before the servant the Savior Jesus and received salvation. I've not allowed him to take my pain and my suffering. This is what it means to be a Christian. I think it's Romans 10. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, right? after he bore your suffering and your pain. You shall be saved. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I want to just give you that chance. Right now, in the quiet of your heart, in the seat, if you've never received this message, all you need to do is ask for it. Okay? Humbly. In your own words, a prayer like this one. God, thank you for sending your son Jesus on a rescue mission into a broken world, this broken world, my broken world, to bring me salvation. Thank you that the punishment for my peace was laid on him and with him and through him my wounds are healed. I open my life to you now. I receive this gift by faith thank you I bow down before you please give me this grace
if you prayed that prayer right where you sit, no one's looking around but me, just raise your hand right where you sit, up and down very quickly. Thank you very much. Thank you. Up and down. Thank you. Just up and down, just so I can see it. And if on this live stream, go ahead and put a hand on the live stream. God can see it. Nothing to be ashamed for of. Father, I thank you for these friends in this room, in this community. Lord, if, if, they, if they received this gift, if they heard and saw and understood, it was because you opened their eyes. I pray you would deliver the promised Holy Spirit and be their Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let me say something quick before I let you go. Two things, quickly. One is, if you prayed that prayer, whether you raised a hand or not, in this room or outside, just text the word Jesus to the number. Why are we doing that? So we're going to you know, have some tally somewhere on a billboard? Of course not. But what we'd love to do is to know who you are and help you, both in simple electronic ways and beyond, to put some information in your hand. want to send you something, a, a small gift, but a, a gift that will matter in your life, okay? And help you take a next step in the life of our church. So do that. It's our pleasure. It's our, it's our, it's our why we exist, to help people grow in their relationship with God. Second thing I'll say before I send us out is this. I think Colin may have mentioned this. Christmas Eve. We're going to do on Christmas Eve what we did today, more or less. Now, the music is going to be, not that it wasn't phenomenal today. Candace was especially was amazing. But it's going to be another amazing set of music uh, with some great, so that's one thing. Great, great worship and Christmas music. A message not too, too different than the one you just heard from the passage in Luke 2. So we'd love for you and your friends to be here online or in person. But if you're coming in person, you need to register. Many of you have, and we've just added another service. on Not the 23rd. There's room still on the 23rd for those who it makes sense to come the day before Christmas Eve Eve. Um, but then, and there's still some room in that service at six, I believe. Um, the four o'clock on the 24th is full. The other two are mostly full, and now we added one at 5.30. So if you're gonna come and you're gonna bring a friend, get register. amen? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone in this room. Lord, we love you, and we long to know you more intimately, more more um, um, fully. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us as we celebrate Christmas, even in this, the midst of a, you know, uh, the pandemic, that we celebrate it, Lord, with um, joy and conviction and grace and that we might see our friends, our family, our neighbors, um, the way that you see them. Help us not to be, um, you know, uh, uh, moved by or intimidated by their, um, how they appear on the outside. But to know uh, what you know and see what you see and understand what you understand, that they have a need, Lord, that only you can meet. Help us to be faithful in serving them and serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.